One of the many things I love about that video is a reminder that whatever your fields of interest or spheres of influence, and if you look around and notice that like there are only or mostly white people in the room, every time that is an opportunity to bring it up, to dismantle racism and advocate for building a diverse, multicultural, beloved community with equitable opportunities for all everywhere. And in the spirit of that burning curiosity that fueled Dr. Neil deGrasse Tyson to overcome all the obstacles, all the racist obstacles in his way to pursue his passion for science, I want to invite us to spend some time reflecting on some of the basic questions that are at the foundation of scientific inquiry that we heard sung in our opening hymn and echoed by Carol in our meditation. Where do we come from? What are we and where are we going? I'm particularly interested in that middle question of what are we? And I wanna um, share a few slides along those lines. Even better, we might say, who am I? Who are you? Who are we? Those three questions may seem simple, but if you keep asking them, sort of just gently dropping them into your um, consciousness and looking closely, you'll find they can take you down quite a rabbit hole. As our guide, I'll be drawing from the book Consciousness, A Brief Guide to the Fundamental Mystery of the Mind by Annika um, Harris. She wrote, also wrote the children's book that Nicole read earlier. She's a best-selling science writer who also happens to be married to Sam Harris, a neuroscientist and best-selling author. Some of you may know his books. There are some things I really love about Sam Harris's work and others that I really, really don't love, but I'm going to hold back because that would be a whole other sermon in itself to talk about Sam Harris. What I'm more interested in um, right now is that whenever something happens in the world around us, sense data comes in through our five senses and it travels different distances through our nervous system to our brain, at which point the signals get synchronized and the brain and then the and then enters your conscious experience through a process called binding. So the brain takes all that disparate sense data that comes in at different times and it binds it and synchronizes it together and then it enters your consciousness. Consider like kicking a soccer ball, for example. At slightly different speeds, your brain is receiving impulses about the touch sensation from way down in your foot that has to travel a relatively long distance, you know, up the nerves in your leg and up the spinal cord to your brain. Also, your brain is taking into consideration the popping sound of your foot hitting the ball that likewise creates sound waves that have to travel up to your ear that then sends information to your brain and your visual tracking of the action going the relatively short distance from your eyes to your brain. There might also be saliva or other tastes in your mouth, various smells coming in through your nose or various other um, data. Your brain takes all of those separate pieces of sense data and it's constantly synchronizing them and then sending edited versions to enter your consciousness. So what that means, what neuroscientists will invite you to wrestle with is the strange truth that we are always living just slightly in the past. The brain knows before the conscious mind does. 
Our conscious self is only aware of the edited version that our brain produces. Indeed, multiple brain scan experiments have shown that researchers, if you hook your brain up to like an EEG, researchers can reliably detect the brain activity, signaling impending movement, like the decision to move my finger right now, about a half second before the subject feels the conscious decision to move. Now, you might be thinking, like, what? That's some wild stuff with serious implications that are not yet fully understood about the interplay between our body and our brain on the one hand and our mind, our conscience, uh, I mean, our consciousness, our sentience on the other. After all, what does it mean if another person watching an EEG of us knows what we're going to do before we know we're going to do it? That's wild. If you're interested in learning more, there's a good short introductory chapter in Annika Harris's book, um, Conscious, or you could go straight to a full book length treatment such as Michael um, Gazzaniga's um, The Consciousness Instinct. But all of this takes us back to those deceivingly simple questions with which we began. Who are you? What am I? And who are we? Most of us, including myself, um, often live with a sense of ourself as kind of floating separately from our bodies and periodically telling our bodies what to do. Can you relate to that? But neuroscience um, challenges us to consider that the sense of our conscious will inhabiting, so to speak, our head, that that is an illusion akin to thinking the earth is stationary with the sun rotating around us. Now, from our everyday perspective, the earth does appear to be still, and the sun does appear to rise in the east and set in the west. But despite this illusion, science has shown us that the earth is constantly moving, even though it feels still to us, and that we're rotating on our axis and revolving around the sun. Or take our current COVID-19 pandemic. To our ancestors, such plagues may have seemed like magic or a curse. But science has shown us the bizarre truth that a microscopic virus, infinitesimally small to the naked eye, that is what is slowing our civilization down to almost a halt. Reality is weird, y'all. That's always a good um, starting point to begin, I think, with some of this science. For now, I'll say that um, similar to the curiosity about the universe that led Neil deGrasse Tyson to become an astrophysicist, curiosity about consciousness itself is the driving motivation between Annika Harris's book. And if you think about it, it really is quite strange that billions of years of evolution resulted in consciousness, in self-awareness, in sentience. We humans are made, like we're composed of the same elemental particles as the stars, as is everything else in the universe that came out of the Big Bang. But the remarkable truth, as one eco-theologian has put it, is that we humans are stardust made of the same thing as the stars that has evolved to the place that that stardust can think about itself. We are the universe becoming conscious of itself. We are stardust that has begun to contemplate the stars, as Neil deGrasse Tyson does. 
that truth alone is mind-blowing enough on its own that we could fruitfully stop there and ponder a good long while. But Harris challenges us to press on, to zoom out, and to ask the further question of what else in the universe is conscious in addition to humanity? What else has self-awareness and sentience? Are our common household pets, dogs and cats, conscious? I think most of us would say, clearly, yes, even if our pets have less sentience than we humans do. What about plants and trees? Are, are they conscious? That's a harder call, but if you were around for my sermon a little more than a year ago on The Hidden Life of Trees, or if you've read that incredible short book by the same title, The Hidden Life of Trees, you know that there is a growing amount of scientific evidence of sentience in plants. Again, less consciousness than in animals, but if we take Darwin's idea of the descent of man seriously, as we should, it makes sense that if we are conscious that some of those beings we evolved from would have some forms of sentience. But what if we zoom out even further? What about a bacteria or a rock? Are they conscious? The further down the tree of life we go, the more difficult it is to find evidence of sentience. But as Harris writes, at some point along the spectrum, the answer is yes. And the great mystery lies in why the lights turned on for some collections of matter in the universe. And for we humans with our advanced consciousness who are self-reflexively aware of our awareness, what have we discovered about sentience in ourselves and others, or what are we continuing to discover? There's a lot more to find out. Well, here's where it's helpful that Annika Harris is married to a neuroscientist who's also been quite open about experimenting with psychedelics. Let's start with neuroscience and then move on to psychedelics. One of the most interesting and challenging discoveries that scientists have found through brain scans, again, is that we humans become conscious of events slightly after they occurred. And I'm gonna say a, even just a little more about that. So even though it can feel like our conscious mind is floating outside of our brain and controlling our body, science challenges us that the directionality may be exactly the opposite. For instance, can you think of examples in which you've witnessed intoxication when you've seen drugs or alcohol or diseases like Alzheimer's or traumatic injury impact someone's brain or your own brain such, such that you or they seem to be no longer yourself or their self? But what does that really mean? The more you pay attention over time, the clearer it is that there is no one persistent self for anyone. And here we can begin to trace a fascinating intersection between modern science, psychedelic experiences, and ancient Buddhist meditation practices. On the one hand, some of the neuroscience that I've been sharing with you can feel disturbing to our sense of self, and rightly so. On the other hand, anyone who spent a fair amount of time hanging out in meditation circles may find a lot of the dis these discoveries fairly standard fare. It's 21st century technology like EEGs, these electroencephalograms, confirming what meditators have been telling us for millennia, that our sense of self in a certain way of seeing things is an illusion. Now don't get me wrong, it's a useful illusion. 
but it's an illusion nonetheless, not unlike the illusion that the sun is rotating around the earth when the reality is something quite different. In the Buddhist tradition, the teaching of non-self is one of the three most important insights. It's often called one of the three marks of existence. And a classic metaphor for non-self is a braided rope. This metaphor perhaps helpfully clarifies that uh, it's less that the braided rope, our sense of self, doesn't exist. It's rather that both the rope and our sense of self can be unbraided into its component parts or rebraided in different ways through drugs or disease or injury or trauma or aging or other experiences into different selves. There's not just one steady, persistent self. And this is where we need to bring back in all that stuff we learned earlier about how our brains synchronize and bind all the disparate data from our five senses together before passing that edited information onto our brains. A lot of what meditation is about, especially what's called vipassana or insight meditation, is a simple practice of noting all those separate sensations that make up our moment-to-moment -moment experience, just seeing, hearing, feeling, and just, just noticing those component parts. And when scientists do brain scans of meditators who spent many hours doing such practices, they find that when experienced meditators meditate, a part of their brain called the default mode network that contributes to our sense of self is suppressed. And that's very interesting because it's a neuroscientific correlate to awakening or enlightenment experiences in which your sense of self drops away completely. And here's where the burgeoning field of psychedelic research comes in. Just as long-term meditation can suppress your brain's default mode network, that part of your brain that does the binding and the synchronizing, brain scans of people taking psychedelics show a disruption in a particular circuit in the brain's default mode network, which causes people under the influence of psychedelics to lose their sense of self. Common experiences from using psychedelics include floating, and finding inner peace, distortions in time, and a conviction that the self is disintegrating. And here's the especially important part. When people on psychedelics report that their sense of self drops away, you don't just go blank. Consciousness remains fully present. And now I'll show you those slides. Let me say that again. When the sense of self drops away for people on psychedelics, consciousness remains fully present. Keep that in mind in conjunction with the neuroscience we considered earlier, that researchers can reliably detect brain activity, signaling impending movements, such as the decision to move a finger about a half second before the subject feels the conscious decision to move. Keep both those things in mind and then ask yourself, who am I? Who are you? Who are we? If you're interested in learning more, I highly recommend all of Michael Pollan's books, but in particular his book, How to Change Your Mind, um, what the new science of psychedelics teaches us about consciousness, dying, addiction, depression, and transcendence, which the New York Times named one of the 10 best books of 2018. At this point, I should clearly state I'm not recommending that anyone break the law but there is increasingly strong scientific evidence that the laws should be changed to allow for responsible therapeutic use of psychedelics. 
It's also crucial to add that with psychedelics as well as with meditation, not only can the sense of self drop away, but also a felt sense can arise of what our UU seventh principle calls the interdependent web of all existence, of which we are a part. And here's where we come full circle to that video of the African-American astrophysicist Neil deGrasse Tyson advocating to tear down all those barriers blocking human beings from doing what they love and building up systems of collective flourishing in which we really are all finally free to pursue what we're passionate about. Along those lines, one of my favorite terms for what it means to live out of a felt sense of our UU seventh principle is Ubuntu which comes from the Zulu tradition of Southern Africa. I learned it from Desmond Tutu, who was inspired by Ubuntu to create the South African Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Ubuntu has been translated variously as I am because we are. Humanity toward others instead of narcissism of self, or a universal bond of sharing that connects all of humanity. We're coming to see here in the 21st century that both spirituality and science invite us to know the deep and profound truth that we are not isolated selves, even if we feel that way sometimes. We are deeply interconnected with one another and with the many other sentient beings on this planet who are at various points on the spectrum of consciousness. From this perspective, for instance, we can notice that the recent headlines about SpaceX, they actually unduly centered our place on this planet. When the news proclaims that the SpaceX crew launched into space as if they weren't in space already, sure, it's true that they launched into space to dock at the International Space Station, but it's also true that we are all always already floating in space on this blue marble we call the earth. That's the deeper, more significant truth of the cosmic situation in which we find ourselves. And just as those astronauts learn to slip the surly bonds of earth, may we humans get better at learning to slip the surly bonds of ego that hold us back from loving one another. May we transcend the arbitrary limitations of ethnicity and tribe. May we live into a felt sense of global interdependence as we float together on this beautiful and fragile planet. Let us open ourselves more fully, not to I think, therefore I am, but to the much deeper and more profound truth that I am because we are. That's who I am. That's who you are. That's who we are. And realizing the truth of our interdependence and living out that can liberate us to truly build the world we dream about. A world of peace, liberty, and justice, not merely for some, but for all sentient beings. In that spirit, let's sing together, Blue Boat Home.